work with, any of your family members, loved ones, and friends who don't have a home church, invite them to come. And uh, you, you never know what God will do when they get here. Holy Spirit, just speak to their heart. And good stuff. I, I'm excited. I love this time of year. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Lori and I got out in Charlotte yesterday and did some Christmas shopping, and I'm here to report that the devil is alive and well on planet Earth. <laughs> but uh, Jesus Christ is alive and well, and uh, greater is he that's in me and you than he that's in the world. So I'm not going to let him steal my peace. He might get my parking space, but he's not going to get my peace. <laughs> and if Lori's driving, he ain't getting our parking spot. <laughs> <laughs> You're in bad luck if you need to merge with this girl. You're in bad luck. <laughs> Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. But he's under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Interesting phrase in the Greek. And because you were sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time of year when we just we commemorate the birth of Christ. Lord, we don't know for sure when Jesus was born, but we're just glad that he was. God, we're glad that, that, you, uh, that you sent your son at just the right time. And Lord, he's come the first time. I believe he's coming again. And so I pray that we'd all be ready, and God, help me today to preach and to speak your word as you would have me to do. God, to stay out of the way, and that you would be glorified in all that we say and do. We ask you to do these things in the name of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. Now, uh, in this particular passage in Galatians 4, Paul is dealing with a concept that you and I may not be that familiar with. And that is the uh, Greco-Roman concept of adoption. And there were nearly 6 million slaves in the Roman Empire uh, during the time that Paul was preaching. And a person could end up as a slave uh, in, in, for any number of reasons. One of the, the main reasons was that they could uh, find themselves in financial hardship and uh, dire straits and they would end up as a slave. And so... The concept of slavery and, and even adoption, the Greco-Roman concept of adoption. We talk a lot about justification, sanctification, uh, glorification. But here's a term we don't talk a whole lot about, but the Bible does speak to it. And that is our adoption as sons. The Greek word is weothesia. It means the placing of a son. 
And so that's the context by which Paul is preaching here to the Galatians. Now, to fully appreciate it, you have to understand the, the uh, climate there in the Galatian churches. When Paul is writing this, they're being tempted to go back into legalism. There had been a group that had infiltrated the church there, the churches of Galatia, after Paul had, uh, had preached. And they came in and basically said that it wasn't enough to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to also keep some of the elements of Judaism. Not necessarily all of the elements, maybe not all 613 laws, but, but some of the biggies like circumcision, maybe the observing of certain days, feast days, uh, Sabbath days, and so on. And so that's the error here that Paul is trying to confront. And I believe that uh, even though we, we're not faced with the similar temptation, you know, most of us are not tempted to go back with circumcision and keeping of the law. But yet we, there is a temptation to fall into a legalistic mentality. And you can know that you're falling into a legalistic mentality when, you've, when your relationship with God is performance-based. And any one of us, I'm going to tell you, I'll be very frank with you this morning. It is very easy for me to fall into legalism. Very easy to fall into that. Uh, and that's the basic idea is that when you do well, uh, that God loves you. And when you're not doing so well, that God doesn't love you as much. I struggle. Now, I don't struggle with God loving you. I mean, I can, I can preach that with conviction each and every day. And I know it to be a fact. And I know instinctively that God loves me. But that's something that I struggle with. And I just wanted to be honest with you this morning. That that's because I came from a very legalistic kind of uh, upbringing on one side of my family, it's difficult for me to embrace this idea that God is a loving Father who loves me. And even when I stumble, He doesn't love me any less. And even when I do good, and I say good in quotes because we know there's none good, but even when I do good, uh, God doesn't love me anymore. I don't earn points with Him. And you can always tell when a church has slipped into legalism because they begin to major on the minors. There's some peripheral issue that becomes paramount. It becomes the paragon of the Christian experience. And I won't go through and, and, and name all the ones, but, but we've all come in contact with those, those kind of churches that, you know, they, they seem really uh, interested in one particular thing, some hobby horse. Uh, I call it the swallowing the camel. Uh, I got a sermon I like to preach. Would you like ketchup with your camel? Jesus said, he accused the Pharisees of straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. You know, they're, they're so focused in on some little thing that somebody's doing, and they, don't, they miss the forest for the trees, and it's easy to do. But we can fall into that uh, as well, even if, even if we don't feel that we're legalistic. I don't know about you, but anytime I read about a Pharisee in the Bible, I don't ever imagine myself being that Pharisee. I always envision myself as being whatever, the tax collector or the, the harlot or whatever. I don't... I don't see myself as the Pharisee, and that's, that's such is the nature of legalism. You can't see it, but it's, it can be there. But anyway, so Paul says to them, he says, The heir, as long as he's a child, differs nothing from a slave. The Greek word for servant is doulos, means slave. Uh, the King James translators opted for the word servant here, but, but it's a slave. And, uh, and, it, and it wasn't necessarily slavery as we think of in the early part of the history of our of our country during the Civil War, but a lot of times slaves were treated like members of the family in that culture. And they could be adopted. Slaves could be adopted and placed as sons. But the heir, as long as he's a child, differs nothing from a servant, being lord of all. And so that's true. 
He's under tutors and governors appointed until the time appointed. There's a set time that will be appointed by the father. Now, for a Jewish young man, it will be the time of his bar mitzvah. He becomes 13. He becomes the son of the law, and he becomes a man. And any one of us here, any one of us men uh, who are over the age of 13, we know that at 13, we were not nearly the men that we thought we were. And, and even at the age that we're at now, we probably aren't. But, um, but interestingly enough, that, that child, even though he would be an heir at age whatever, two or three, uh, he, he would still be under the tutelage of, of his guardian or his, uh, his teacher. And, and we can think about this, and easy, it's easy for us to relate to this. Let me give you an example. Uh, let's talk about Remington over here. Now, Talisha and Paul, their, their heir would be Remington, okay? But I, I dare say Talisha does not give Remington her debit card and say, all right, you go take care of the needs of the family. Now, you, he, you might do that. Do you do that, Talisha? Okay. Okay. Um, Ronnie and Sherry probably don't give Trinity the keys to the car and say, here, go get some groceries and drive it like you stole it. <laughs> That would be irresponsible, wouldn't it? It would be irresponsible, right? Even though they're heirs, right? They're, they're members of the family, but, but there's a time and a place for everything, you see. And so that's what Paul is getting at, until the time appointed of the Father. Now, Paul says, even so we, verse 3, we, were, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. And this is widely disputed among Bible commentators, what he's talking about. Is he talking about the... Uh, the ABCs of the law? Is he talking about the elemental uh, people that worship the stars and the host of heaven? We don't know for sure, but any one of those could apply. I mean, before Christ comes, we are all under some kind of bondage. Paul deals with this in the first few chapters of Romans. Uh, there's those who don't really acknowledge a monotheistic deity, so to speak, but yet the heavens declare the glory of God. They can look in the sun and the stars and the moon, and they can know instinctively that there's a creator, that all of this didn't just happen. The, those who claim to be atheists, they're a small minority. Most people have some kind of religious background. Maybe they're pagans worshiping uh, polyistic, polytheism, um, many gods like the Greeks did in, in, in the ancient culture. Uh, maybe they're moralists. Paul deals with them. You know, Paul says even for those who don't have the law, there is a law written on the heart called the conscience. And so we instinctively know that there is something that there's right and wrong. We instinctively know this. And even those who, who proclaim that they don't believe in any God, if you were to go and steal something that belonged to them, they would say, that's wrong. And I always like to say, well, on what basis is it wrong if there's no morality, if there's no God? But instinctively they know because God created, even the moralist has a conscience, you see. Or it could be referring to the Jews who had the law. They had the law, and, and I mentioned, alluded to this earlier, but whenever we speak of the law, we're not just speaking of the Ten Commandments. Whenever the Bible speaks of the law, it speaks of it as a unit. It all, it, all of it is one unit. James would say it this way, if we offend in one point of the law, we're guilty of all of it. The Apostle Paul, in this letter to the Galatians, he says, you can't pick and choose what parts of the law that you want to be under. Such is the nature of legalism. Legalism always picks some, some point that, of the law that they want to be under. 
whatever it is. They always pick some point of the law that they want to be under, and they disregard the others. I said I wasn't going to, but I'm going to pick on one group, <laughs> okay? Seventh-day Adventist. If, if you're here today and you're a Seventh-day Adventist, I want you to know I love you, but if you are firmly entrenched in that belief, you are majoring on a minor that's not even biblical, okay? The Sab for the Seventh-day Adventist, the Sabbath day is the be-all, end-all. I mean, it's, it is the, the, again, to use that word, the paragon. It is the ultimate expression of worship is to, is to worship on Saturday. And they really don't understand the concept of the Sabbath because in the, on the Sabbath day in ancient Israel, they didn't go to the temple. They stayed home on the Sabbath day. Oh, y'all are quiet on me. Sunday's not the Sabbath day either. Thought I'd just go ahead and grind your gears while I'm here. <laughs> Sunday, Sabbath day starts at sundown on Friday, and it ends sundown on Saturday. Sunday is the first day of the week, and we gather on the first day of the week because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. He fulfilled the feast of first fruits by rising. The church was born on a Sunday, on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is always on a Sunday, and, and we gather on Sunday. But anyway, uh, we were in bondage under the elements of of the world the ABC's of life you know it's okay to be uh, on the milk it's okay to be a, a baby when you're a baby how many teachers do we have here this morning Abby raise your hand too hi you're a new teacher congratulations on your new job do, do y'all still teach to the little kids do you still sing the ABC song y'all remember that the ABC song now for a kindergarten is that what age they teach it around kindergarten Okay. It's appropriate to learn the ABC song. But what if Ronnie got up here and said, everybody stand. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. What would you think? You think, well, we need a new music minister. <laughs> he, he's been smoking them little, uh, little bitty cigarettes, the wacky backer, as they call it. <laughs> you see? That would be really inappropriate. For a, for a full-grown man to be up here singing the ABC stone. And that's the point Paul's trying to make. Look, it's okay to be ABC when you don't have full knowledge, when you don't have revelation. But listen, folks, Jesus Christ has come. He's, li he's lived and he's died and he rose again. And so there's no need for us to go back and live under something that he came to fulfill and now has been rendered inoperative. The Apostle Paul says that our relationship to the law is unique. We're dead to it. That's what he says in the book of Romans. You and I are dead to the law that we might be married to another. Okay. Now y'all got the ABC song stuck in your head. I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe it'll leave you by the time you get to the lunch table. Verse 4. But when the fullness of the time was come. Let's, let's just focus on that for a moment. There was an appropriate time when Jesus was to come to this world. He didn't come right after Adam and Eve fell. We might think that would be an appropriate time, right? I mean, Adam's blown it big time. Uh, the human race has been plunged into death, darkness, and despair, and gloom. Why not send the Messiah now? Well, it wasn't time. God appears to Noah. He says it's going to be about 120 years, and then the flood's coming. It's not time for the Messiah yet. The flood comes, Noah, the, the ark lands. We find 70 nations 
I think in Genesis 11. And then in chapter 12, we focus on one nation, one man. God appears to Abram, Abram Ur, and calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees. And he says, out of you, out of your seed, shall all, this, all the people of the earth be blessed. Okay? Time for the Messiah now, right? No. While Abraham's waiting, God appears to him in that famous scene where he walks between the animal pieces and the, the burning torch. And he says, uh, Abraham, uh, you're going to have the son, just like I promised, but your descendants are going to be in Egypt for roughly 400 years, 430, 400 nominally. So it, it still wasn't time, okay? Well, they come out of Egyptian bondage. And we might think, well, now's the time for the Messiah. But then God meets with them on Mount Sinai and gives them the law. Gives them these, not only the Ten Commandments, but 613 commandments that I dare say not a single person in this room would be able to keep. All of them, even if you tried. Even if you made the, the deepest commitment to, to do it, you couldn't do it. Then the people desired a king, just like God predicted that they would. Well, surely now will be the time for God to send the Messiah, right? They've asked for a king. Let's send him. Well, the people's choice was Saul, but God's choice was David. And David has a uh, desire to build the house for God. And then God appears to, uh, to David, or he speaks through Nathan to David. And he says, I know you want to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. And the Messiah will come through your offspring. Still the time wasn't right. Then we have the monarchy, which is what Israel thought would be the pinnacle. It would be the, uh, the greatest experience would be to have a monarchy, to be just like all the other nations, to have a king, but our king would be great. Our kings would rule in righteousness, but was that what happened? No. Even the greatest king, David, had a couple of major blots on his record. The monarchy was a failure to some degree. And then they're carried away into Babylonian captivity. And God says, not only are you going to captivity, but he speaks through Jeremiah, and he tells them exactly how long it's going to be. He says, 70 years. Remember, this, this time appointed of the Father. We're still with that motif of the, God, the time appointed of the Father. Okay? And then Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in his dream, he sees the image, this massive image with all the various empires. God says no. It's not in Nebuchadnezzar's time. It won't be in Cyrus's time. Cyrus will allow the Jews to come back. And rebuild the temple. It won't be in Alexander the Great's time. Although Alexander the Great. Helped the propagation of the gospel. When he Hellenized the world. And so they were pretty much a common language. No matter what they spoke. Almost everybody at least spoke Greek. Koine Greek was the, the common language. The, one of the most precise languages on the face of the earth. Which gave way to the translation of the Bible in the Septuagint. The Old Testament scriptures were translated into Greek. And then the New Testament uh, translated into Greek. And then the Roman Empire would come. We would have the Pax Romana. The world was basically at peace because of the law and order. Ro Rome had crushed everything. And ruled with a rod of iron. They also paved roads. Some of those roads still exist today. These, these wonderful road projects. 
It'd be nice if the folks from South Carolina could have gone to Rome and learned from <laughs> Caesar how to pave a road. <laughs> anyway, all of this set the stage, as it were, for the Messiah to come. And while they were in Babylonian captivity, by the way, while Daniel was there, the angel Gabriel appeared to him. Remember that? We studied that. And Gabriel told Daniel exactly how many months, years, days, and weeks it would be until Jesus would come. Amazing. You would think everybody would be looking for him, and I'm sure some were. But then at the precisely the right time, when Caesar gives a, a decree that everybody would be taxed, and oh, by the way, Joseph, being from Bethlehem, he just happens to go there to fulfill precisely what Micah had predicted, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Amazing, isn't it? Just the right time. And I believe at just the right time, Jesus will come again. Amen. Every prophecy of the first coming was fulfilled in precise detail. Every single one of them was fulfilled. And the Bible is replete, it's filled with examples of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I believe that every one of them will be fulfilled in precise detail. Jesus said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. You can count on it. I don't know how many of you noticed, and I'm not going to get off on a tangent here. How many of you saw the statue that was rolled out by the UN this week? Any of you see the statue? Some of you did. It was a statue that basically looked like the fourth beast from Daniel chapter 7 and the one from Revelation 13. The United Nations has this statue. It has the face of a lion, leopard, bear's feet, wings. I mean, it's just like the vision of Daniel. Uh, they said it's a jaguar. The Bible says it's a leopard, but I mean, we're not going to split hairs on this. Folks, this thing's winding up. Amen. I mean, look around you. The Jews are back in the land. The church is in an apostasy. I mean, flip through Christian television and, and all you see is fluff. Send me your money. Name it, claim it. If you got enough faith, every day will be a Friday for you. I mean, where's the preaching of the cross? Where is the preaching of the return of Jesus Christ? Amen. You know, and, I, and I, this struck me as I was driving into church this morning. The early church, I mean, 2,000 years ago, roughly, they all lived with an earnest expectation that Jesus was coming. And here we are at the finish line, basically, and everybody's like, oh, well, I've heard that all my life. And that has no bearing on anything. I'm sure the same thing was said of the first coming. I'm sure everybody thought, well, we've been hearing about this Messiah all of our lives and everything just continues just like it was. And then all of a sudden, here's Jesus. And he came just like God said that he would and he's coming again. Amen. Thank you, Brother Ronnie. I needed that one amen. It's, it's, it's feeling kind of hollow in here. All right. When the fullness of the time was come, God, notice who took the initiative. God didn't wait on us. If that were the case, we'd still be waiting. God sent forth, and this word in the Greek, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but the word sent forth, it carries with it the idea of being dispatched for a mission. 
He was sent forth. God sent forth not an angel, not just a prophet, but who did he send? That's what it says in Hebrews 1. God has in these last days spoken to us through a son, through his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things. God did not send just an ambassador of any, of any sort. He sent the Son. This speaks of the eternity, eternality of God. Jesus is divine. His beginning is not in Bethlehem. John gives us his true genealogy in John 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Amen. The same was in the beginning with Him. And then you skip on over a few verses he says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek literally says tabernacled, took on a robe of flesh. The word came and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When the time was just right, God sent forth his son. And the reason he did that is, is purely one motivation, love. Amen. Love. John 3.16 is one we all know and are familiar with, but, but does it resonate with you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have what? Ionius zoe in the Greek, life that never ends. It's not just a quantity, but it's a quality of life. And then if you go on to the next verse, it says, for God did not send forth his son into the world to condemn the world, because we were already condemned, but that the world through him might be saved. God dispatched his son, and if I can say it this way, God dispatched Jesus of Nazareth to the world to, on a rescue mission. He didn't come here to condemn us. We were already powerless, totally defeated, totally dead. We weren't just on life support, folks. We were dead in trespasses and sins. And God dispatched his son on a rescue mission. Jesus said, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but I come to call sinners to repentance. Those who are whole don't need a physician, but those who are sick. You see, the real sickness was not the, the, the leprosy. It wasn't the palsy. It wasn't the... Uh, the other the, the dropsy or whatever malady that they had. I'm thinking of the, the, the man that was brought to Jesus. He was paralytic. He was a paralytic. And he was brought to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and he thought, well, good gracious, the man's legs don't work. But his real problem is he's estranged from God. And what Jesus did is he said, son, your sins be forgiven thee. Amen. You think, well, the man's crippled. Yeah, but his real problem was he needed his sin to be forgiven. And Jesus said, but just so you know, <laughs> just so you know that I'm God, go ahead and take up your bed and walk. And as surely as he was healed physically, he was saved eternally by the Spirit of God. God sent forth his Son. God was manifest in the flesh. That's what his name means, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, not God the Father, but God the Son. Now, the, the next thing it says, he was made of a woman. This speaks of his humanity. Now, we, we know he was not just any ordinary human. He was born of a virgin. I preached on that last week, so I'm not going to preach on it again. That's one of the signs Isaiah uh, gave to, uh, to the king. And it was fulfilled in the virgin birth. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. Amen. Amen. 
Otherwise, he's not God. Otherwise, he's not divine. He was born of a virgin, but he was made of a woman. This speaks of his humanity. You know, Jesus experienced the whole gamut of what it is to be a human. He slept. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was weary. He prayed. He slept. He, he felt emotion. He wept when, when uh, Lazarus died. He experienced all of the emotions that, that we feel. And the Bible says he also experienced the, the whole spectrum of temptation. Okay? He was tempted in all points, like as we are. And that's why we have a high priest. You, you need to be studying with us on Wednesday night. We've been talking about a high priest. A high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Who, who can empathize and sympathize with our weakness because he's been where you are. And his ultimate humanity was expressed in the fact that he died. He literally died on the cross. And he, he was made of a woman. But then it says he was made under the law. This is important. Jesus came to do what you and I could never do. And that is to keep the law 100%. And that, by the way, is the requirement for heaven. The standard is not pretty good. Some of you, you've got this relative theology. You think, well, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty decent fella. I'm certainly not as bad as that guy. I don't do what she does. And we can get real energized when, when the preacher preaches against something that we're not convicted about, can't we? I mean, we can. I'm not going to give you examples. But I can stand up here and rail against certain sins, and y'all would be, hallelujah, preacher, 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 preacher. And then I could settle down on something like gossiping or whispering, and y'all would get as quiet as a mouse. But you see, that kind of stuff will estrange you from God just as sure as adultery will. <laughs> Do you know that in the book of Romans in chapter 1, the whisperer and the murderer are listed in the same group? Oh, y'all don't like that kind of preaching, do you? But that's, I mean, that's the, that's the truth. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Okay? So we've got a real dilemma on our hands. If, if we're counting on getting to heaven on goodness, I'm a good old boy. I'm a good neighbor. I'm a good employee. I'm a good friend. I'm faithful to my spouse. I don't cheat on my taxes. I mean, surely there's a place for me in heaven. Yep, there is. But that ticket is blood red. It's the blood of Jesus. That's the only way you're getting in. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's it. If you try to come any other way, the door will be barred shut. The only way you can get in is because Christ, he was born under the law. And then it says in verse 5 that he redeemed them that were under the law. Glory to God. <laughs> this speaks of his death. Jesus did not come just to be a baby in a man. He didn't come just to do miracles. 
He didn't come just to tell clever stories, parables. He didn't come just to teach kingdom concepts. That baby that was born in Bethlehem came with one purpose, and he was born to die. He was born to die. Remember when Simeon saw the Christ child and Mary is there and, and Joseph bring him in? And remember what Simeon told Mary? He said, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. I can only imagine what Mary must have been feeling. I can only imagine. The elation that she felt at being the mother of God's son, but also the grim reality that one day they would part ways and it would be a very unusual parting of ways and the Bible says that Mary pondered these things in her heart she kept these things in her heart and I just wonder all the times you know Jesus faced a lot of opposition during his ministry I wonder how many times when people were ready to, to, to murder him did Mary think is this going to be the day well I know my son's leaving me will it be today Remember that episode where uh, Jesus is teaching and it says your brothers and your mother, they want to speak with you. And Jesus says, who are my brothers and who, are my, who is my mother? Most commentators believe that at that point they're trying to talk Jesus out of going through with it. You know? Imagine as a mother knowing that your son is going to die for the sins of the whole world. Imagine. She's, Mary was human. She was human. Imagine that. But that's the purpose for which he came. And he knew this. How many times in the Gospel of John does it say that his hour had not yet come? He knew. And he knew that he was not a victim of circumstance. The cross was not a tragic uh, accident. It was an accomplishment. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I have the power to take it up again. You know why? Because he's God. Now, the last part here. Remember, this is all part of the purpose of the Christmas story. It was not just that Jesus would die, but that you and I would receive the adoption as what? It's in your Bible. Sons. Now, some of y'all bristle at that. You say, why didn't it say sons and daughters? Right? That's what some of you are thinking. Well, he already dealt with that in the previous chapter. He says, in Christ Jesus, there's neither male nor female, bond or free. So don't, don't get all ruffled up over that. <laughs> okay? There's a reason he uses the term son. And it has to do with the whole analogy of the adopted son. The firstborn son who was the heir. That's why he uses that, that terminology or nomenclature. Um, it's not a chauvinistic type thing at all. But we might receive the adoption of sons. <laughs> and because you are sons, God has sent forth, just like he sent forth Jesus, in chapter 4, excuse me, in verse 4, now the Holy Spirit is sent forth. And the Holy Spirit is sent forth, the Spirit of the Son, which is Jesus, into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
Now, Abba is actually how it's pronounced. Abba is an Aramaic term, uh, kind of a diminutive. And the closest thing we would have would be Papa or Daddy. Okay. Now, don't think juvenile here. Okay. Now, I know when my kids were little, when they were mad at me, I was Dad. But when they wanted something, I was Daddy. You don't know what I'm talking about. But don't think juvenile here. I, I think a lot about Smokey and the Bandit. Remember Buford T. Justice, he had the boy, the, the grown man that just called him daddy. He was always daddy this and daddy that. Don't, don't think juvenile here. But this speaks of intimacy. This speaks of, and this was a new concept. This was not a concept really that the, uh, now, now the Jews would say that God was our father. But the whole Old Testament economy spoke of restricted access. We've been studying about that in Hebrews. Everything from the giving of the law um, to, to the temple worship. The temple worship did not scream access granted, did it? The whole thing was like stay out. <laughs> only the priests could go in. Only Jews. Only the priests. And then only the high priest could go in to the Holy of Holies. And then only once a year on Yom Kippur. So, yeah, they had the concept of God as a father, of course. Father Abraham and, and so on. But they didn't really know God in an intimate way. Even that high priest, you know, when he went in on the, the Day of Atonement, it was not a time of celebration. He was not in there saying, hey, Daddy, it's good to be here. <laughs> he, he's thinking, my goodness, if I, if I make one mistake, I'm dead. And, and, and tradition tells us that they, they tied a rope around him you know, in case they had to pull him out. <laughs> if the bell quit ringing, you know, next man on, next man up. Go to the bullpen, you know. Hope somebody's in the dugout, <clears throat> in the bullpen. It's, it, it didn't speak of intimacy. But now, now because of Christmas, because God sent forth his son, and he sent forth the spirit of God into our hearts, now the spirit cries, Abba, Father. You have a father that loves you. And I think it offends God when we act like orphans. It's got to. I know it would offend me as a parent if my children acted like they didn't have a dad. It would be very offensive to me. Jesus said, your father knows what you have need of even before you ask. He knows. Prayer is not an intelligence briefing. He's not letting God know what's going on. He knows. He knows every need. He knows that thing you've been talking to him about. Anybody been praying about some stuff in here? God knows. God knows what you're praying about. He knows before you speak it. He loves you. Wherefore, he says in verse 7, Wherefore, you are no more a doulos, but a weos. I'm speaking Greek here. And that's the last of the Greek. You're welcome. <laughs> he says, you're not a slave, but you're a son. See, the prodigal son, when he left the father's house, and he finally came to his senses, and I'm praying that for somebody here today, or maybe somebody listening to the message on CD, somebody on Facebook, somebody that's been away from God. The story of the prodigal son is really a radical thing. 
It was really radical on a number of levels. But when the man finally came to himself, he was willing to go back to the father's house, but he wanted to go back as a slave. Right? You've read the story. He was willing to go back as a servant, as a slave, a doulas. But the, the, but, but the prodigal's father said, no, you, you, you can come home, but you're not coming back as a doulas. You're coming back as a weas. <laughs> you're coming back with shoes on your feet, a ring on your hand, and a robe on you. Not a second-class citizen. Not somebody that just needs to beg for mercy, that needs to beg for attention, that needs to beg for love, but somebody that is beloved of the Father. Someone who knows every need, knows everything about you and loves you anyway. That's God. God knows every little quirk about you and He loves you anyway. He knows. How about your friends? You have any friends that know everything about you and they love you anyway? If they do, they're precious. God loves you knowing all that's wrong with you. You'd say, yeah, but that was before I got saved. Come on. Give God a little bit of credit here. Give God some credit. See, they're in that upper room, and they're thinking about the things that they've sacrificed for the kingdom. And you know what Jesus says to them? He says, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. You say, yeah, but you don't know what I'm going to do next week. You don't know what I'm going to do two weeks from now. Well, Jesus knew that Peter was going to deny him. Hey, I'm preaching the truth here this morning. Jesus said to Peter, he says, before the night's over with, Peter, you are going to blow it big time. But, but, when you're converted, you're going to strengthen your brothers. Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but it's not over for you, Peter. That's not the final chapter. And that's what that whole, that whole meeting on the beach was all about. Peter had denied him three times, and then three times Jesus says, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter's just exasperated. He says, Lord, I love you the best I can. You know, you know I'm human. You know I'm frail. When God called you, my friend, he knew every failure that you would ever make, and he called you anyway. Because he knows the end from the beginning. He does. God knew, God knew every failure in your life, and he called you anyway. He called you anyway, knowing what you would do, knowing that you would fail him. And he did this because he loves you. He loves you so much. And this concept of the love of God is so important. It's so important. And it's so, it's so difficult for us to grasp that Paul prayed for the Ephesians. They were already saved. They were Christians, but Paul said, I'm praying for you that you could receive strength, be strengthened with might by the Spirit of God in your inner man that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. 
It's a love so great, your brain can't even comprehend. God loves you so much, it would, it would melt you in your pew if you knew how much God loved you. Somebody needs to hear that. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. God loves you. You say, what about my failures? I'm going to read something to you from Romans 8 because I don't want to get it wrong. <laughs> Sometimes I get the big head and think I can quote something and I leave something out. And I don't want to leave it out. I'm going, to, I'm going to read to you from Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things, we don't think, we know. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. Do you know, believer, you have a destiny? If you're saved here this morning, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if you are saved this morning, if you are saved, are you tracking with me here? If you're saved, you have a destiny. And that destiny was determined not by you. It was determined by the Father. One day, every believer in here will be conformed to the image of Jesus. One day. And I look in the mirror and I think, we got a lot of work to do. It just seems like a long ways off. But the Bible says that if you're saved, you have a destiny that you will be conformed to the image of His Son. Now, it might be painful. That process can be painful. He says that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Notice, not a slave, but a son. That's who you, you and I are. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. This is an effectual call. And whom He called, them He also justified. That's salvation. That's being born again. That's being declared righteous. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. You say, well, we're not there yet. I agree. And I don't have to look at you. All I have to do is look in the mirror. I'm not there yet. But guess what? That's my destiny. If you're saved, your destiny is glory. And I believe it's going to be so good. It's just going to. I just can't even express with words. It's going to be so good to see all of our loved ones that have gone on before us. Amen. Those who have been waiting on us. There's a wedding. There's a great wedding that you've been invited to. Amen. Not just as a servant, but as a participant. There's a seat for you at the table. You know, I don't know a whole lot of famous people. That doesn't, that doesn't do much for me anyway. But I know one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I'm not just his slave, although I'm willing to be one, but I'm his son. I'm his child. And I have a seat at the table. And one day I'll sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Daniel and Noah. <laughs> and we'll sit down and break bread in the kingdom of God. And we'll look around at each other and we'll say, you know what, Brother Lynn? It was hard some days, but my gosh, it was worth it. It was worth it. Every sacrifice, every dollar that I gave, every bit of my time that I gave to the Lord, everything that I sacrificed for the Lord was worth it all. I wish, and I believe what we'll say is I wish I'd have done more. If I'd have known it was going to be this good, I would have invested more into the kingdom. I'd have prayed more. I'd have worshipped more. I'd have, I'd have lived straighter and righter. I'd have stayed in closer communion with the Father. 
What shall we then say then to these things? Well, I think we ought to say hallelujah, glory to God. But if God be for us, who's against us? Do you know this, folks? God is not against you. God is for you. The story of redemption. I love the stained glass windows that tell the old, old story. I love it. And, and, and they, in pictures, they show us the Christ child coming to the world and living among us and doing the miracles and dying on the cross and rising again for us. He that did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him now freely, also freely give us how many things? All things. This is the God that you and I serve. The God who loves us. The God who did not spare his only son but the God who gave his only son that he might freely give us all things. It's not as if we have to twist God's arm to love us. He's already demonstrated that. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Let me go ahead and answer it for you, even though it's implied. Nobody. You know why? Because if you're saved, God has already banged the gavel of heaven, and he has declared two words, not guilty. It is God that justifieth. Well, you, if I'm going to be condemned again, we got a problem, because I have been declared righteous by the highest court in the land. Whoo! And I'm not talking about the Supreme Court. I'm talking about the ultimate Supreme Court. The ultimate judge of heaven has looked at me. He has reviewed my case. And oh yes, based upon the evidence, I am guilty without a doubt. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But now he has placed me, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, on my account. His perfection for my imperfection. His strength for my weakness. His glory for my frailty, my infirmity. And he banged the gavel and he said, I see the facts, but here is one who has stood in your place and I declare you not guilty. And if you're saved, the same is true of you this morning. And who's going to overturn that verdict? Nobody. Who is he that condemns? Well, maybe my brother and my sister or my neighbor, but not God. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. Jesus is right now alive and well, and look what he's doing. He's at the right hand of God. And he's not building a mansion, as some of our songs say. That's not what he did. Because the Bible says the kingdom has been prepared before the foundation of the world. He's not there with a hammer and nails. But that's okay if you want to believe that. But right now, he's at the right hand of the Father. And his present ministry is he is ever living to intercede for you and me. And we're going to make it. I love your prayers. Thank God that you pray for me. I feel them. But you know who I'm most grateful that's praying for me? Jesus of Nazareth. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nobody. Notice all these things are personified even though they're stuff. They're things. They're not people. It's personified. Tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? The answer is none of those things. None of those things. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Life is hard. The Christian life is hard. No, in all of these things, in them, in the suffering, in the pain, in the bad doctor's report, in the rejection, in the failed marriage, in the failed whatever, business. In all of those things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. You see, love is a predominant theme here. 
For I am persuaded. And that word I believe in English is not strong enough to convey the Apostle Paul's conviction. He was, maybe I should say, maybe if we were translating it today, and I don't think I'm any smarter than anybody else, but maybe it would be more accurate to say I'm convinced. I am persuaded that neither death nor life. You know everything fits into one of those two categories? Forget about the others. <laughs> There's either life and death. Angels or principalities. Powers. And as if that were not exhaustive. Things present or things to come. Do you get that? Nothing that's going to happen to me today is going to make God stop loving me. Not, not anything. And nothing tomorrow is going to make him stop loving me. Nothing. I mean, that's what the word says. Nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth. And as if he left anything out, if there's anything left to question, he says no, nothing in all of creation. You know who that includes? You. Because I know we think sometimes, well, I know all of that other stuff won't hurt me. You know, I know, I know tribulation or distress. But what about me? I mean, after all, I'm a hard case. Don't you think you're a hard case for God sometimes? I know I, I, think, I feel that way. And I know some of y'all are too. <laughs> I'm a hard case. But God says nothing's too hard for me. Nor, think, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from what? The love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I plan to preach real short today, and you see how that went. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. Because I believe the Lord had something he wanted to say to you and me today. And uh, to God be the glory. Would you stand this morning? The Christmas story says this. God's taking the initiative for your salvation. You can be saved. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you came from. I don't care what your past is. It does not matter. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cleanse you from every sin. You'll never get there on your own. The cross of Jesus has paid the price for you and I to have access to God. Not simply as slaves. That would be great. I mean, to spend eternity as God's slave would be the best job in the world. I can only imagine. But God says, I'm not just looking for slaves. I'm looking for sons and daughters. I'm looking for children. If you've never received him this morning, what a great Christmas present. <laughs> what, a, what a great thing to have eternal life. Maybe you're a believer here today. Maybe you've been struggling with, with your assurance of salvation, wondering if God loves you, wondering if your failures have forfeited any future use in God's plan. No, God is the God of second chances, my friend. He's the God of new beginnings. I'm living proof. He's the God of resurrection, and he'll do that for you today. If any of those apply to you, or if you just want to lay a burden here on the altar, would you come?